This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. The government says the public finances are in worse shape than it thought, but should it be shocked? To talk about that, let's bring in NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So, Brent, what have the ministers been saying? Well, we've got the Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, saying that the economy is in a fragile state, almost, you know, as it's on the point of collapse, you know. And then, of course, the Finance Minister, Nicola Willis, talking about a whole lot of surprises in the books and things are worse than she thought, um, you know, in terms of both, you know, supposedly debt and, and future spending, that, that money's not allocated. And so, yeah, I mean, painting a very, very gloomy picture about both the state of the finances and, and the economy. A gloomy picture because they painted that before the election, but just saying, oh, you know, we've got in there and we found it's much worse. Yeah, should they actually be surprised, though, or not? No, they shouldn't be surprised, I mean, particularly uh, when it comes to the state of the government's finances. You know, specifically, they've pointed to um, investments in, in a lot of transport infrastructure that it's, you know, supposedly about $200 billion of um, commitments that's not that isn't funded. But... You know, if you go back, for instance, even just go to the pre-election um, economic and fiscal update, and there it, the Treasury highlighted a whole lot of projects, including Auckland Light Rail, mm. Let's Get Wellington Moving, where the funding hadn't been approved. So here was the commitment, we want to do this, but the decisions around funding were to be made, say, for Auckland Light Rail this year in terms of... And obviously this government has canned that, they've canned Let's Get Wellington Moving... As the previous Labour government canned a number of national roads of significance that its earlier National League government put up, but were also the money wasn't there yet to do them. So, I mean, it's a natural cycle of things where governments decide they make commitments, then they get the full detailed business case done and what have you, and then they make further decisions about funding them. So, so yeah, no surprise that a lot of these things, the money wasn't just sit a, set aside in a bank somewhere for the government to spend on them. So does it, that mean that these projects get canned as well? Well, you know, there's, there's no doubt that this government, as any government would have, and had Labor got back into office, it would have faced all these problems too, around, you know, what do you spend money on? Because, you know, we've known for a long time that there's been this big backlog of infrastructure investment, you know, billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. So... Any government, and certainly this government, is going to have to make some tough choices about where will it invest in infrastructure and also where it will spend a range of other money. I mean, in, interestingly, the Treasury had also warned that it believed that um, probably the petrol tax and or road user charges would have to go up to meet some of the shortfall just in maintaining mm. the transport network. Now, of course, we know the government has committed not to doing those things, so you know, it puts the squeeze on where does it find the money and we've had, you know, Nicola Willis and, and other government ministers talking about, well, other options for raising finance, you know, public-private partnerships and the like. Mm. So you'll probably see a lot more of that in the coming months and years for any government if they are to be able to afford to, to build some of the infrastructure that's needed. What does this mean for the May budget? Well, for the May budget, and you get a sense almost that the government is laying the groundwork to say, hey, things are much tougher than we thought. Therefore, you know, whether they're trying to backtrack from some of the promises they've made around spending and around and, and possibly around tax cuts, because the affordability issue is there, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but, you know, again, 
before the election, they were told a number of times by not just their political opponents, but by economists that, hey, that's not affordable, not under the current setting. So um, you, 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 know, you do wonder about the politics of it. It is setting up a position where they can go into the budget and say, oh, we can't do everything we kind of promised because the, the books are worse than we thought. So a way for thin budget. Well, I think we've already had that signal mm. that, you know, because, I mean, you know, the national or the coalition government has already said the operating allowances, that's for new spending, have been cut right back. So there is not a lot of room. And we know, too, they're looking for 65 or 7.5% cuts to different government agencies and departments. So, yeah, this is not going to be a big spending budget. Brent Edwards, thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Beehive banter once again with lots to talk about, but a very sad occasion, of course, with Professor Collins passing away, resulting in Parliament being scrapped for the rest of the week. Such was the standing he was seen in. So our thoughts and condolences to friends and family. All right, poll time again. TVNZ One News variant poll. Basically, in a nutshell, only real changes from the election is Greens and Party Māori up, no surprise, and act down, which will all mean that the status quo uh, would stand if an election were to be held now, which, of course, it isn't. So, as Brent Edwards would say, but I will on his behalf, it's totally irrelevant. What is relevant is the major drop of Chris Hipkins as preferred Prime Minister. No surprise, he's leader of the opposition now, with, frankly, bugger all air in the media, but... How long before the leadership knives are out? Or no point in this election cycle yet, Brent? Well, you know, I mean, you might say that that's irrelevant too. I'm always interested in the most preferred Prime Minister's poll. I mean, we don't elect Prime Ministers in the way that the Americans elect a president, but we have got incredibly focused on it over the last number of years. And, and naturally enough, when a politician drops, and in this case, Chris Hipkins, the media always ask the question, are you going to resign? Are you going you know, and sort of raise these leadership questions. I mean, at this point, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to think, would they consider that? Because, A, actually Labor's polling better than its election result, albeit you know, yeah. only marginally better. It is early days, and I think he made the point, as you said, you're no longer Prime Minister, so if people ask, you know, who's the preferred Prime Minister, well, you're no longer Prime Minister, you don't... You don't get that bump with just having the title. So um, no big thing. And we've never really been able to work out what does it mean to the party support. And the the party support will be the big thing. Now, if Labor continues to poll in 20s into not just later next year, later this year, but into next year and then within sight of the The election, maybe Labor MPs will start to get a little bit you know, nervous to think of who? But who, who would do it? Well, yeah. Megan Woods? Well, well we're going to talk about no, her shortly. But yeah, but, but I mean, but the other thing is, surely they'll all remember what they did, what Labor did to itself no, from, two, from 2008 <laughs> to 2017, because, you know, that leadership thing, I mean, well, I having said that, to be honest, I mean, the, the one leader, you know, Andrew Little as leader, did recognise his leadership, for whatever reason, yeah. was basically holding the party back. He fell on his own sword of his own volition and handed over to yes, Justin. Yes, that Ardern. was only weeks before an election. Uh, yeah, and you saw this massive surge. Yep. That really is a one-off. I can't imagine something like that happening again. No. Which brings me to two points. Grant Robertson, 
firstly, in that not well orchestrated announcement with, is he, isn't he? Oh, where is it? No, that's not for me to say. Oh, press releases snuck out. Oh, better put one out myself. Uh, that he's going into education and, of course, returning home to Dunedin. And then Ginny Anderson with one of those I'm really not thinking outburst moments accusing Mark Mitchell of being paid to kill people. So, Brent, a big loss for Labour and a big bit of stupidity. Yeah, look, yeah, that is a big loss for Labour, losing Grant Robertson. But but you can kind of overplay the impact. I mean, this has happened before when, you know, senior members of a party, whether it's Labour or National, have left. And in the end, most parties... Well, he could have run, he could have run for the, the Labour leadership. He could have run for well, the Prime Minister as, role, but he decided not no, to. No, well, as he pointed out, he'd run twice... Missed yep. out twice, and after losing the second time, made a decision he wasn't going to do it again. And, yep. and, you know, so um, and instead he, he got the role of um, finance minister in the end for six yep. years. Um, people have differing views on how he performed that role. Lots of different uh, views. You know, if you read the comments on MPR, <laughs> yeah. but um, but yeah, so it, it will be a loss for Labor. But uh, as long as they retain, and that's actually coming back to Chris Hipkins. You know, he is an experienced hand. You wouldn't really want to lose him either because. No. If you did get rid of him as leader, more than likely he would leave too because, you know, there's not much point staying on. But it, but it will be also interesting, though, you know, Barbara Edmonds taking over as finance spokesperson, first woman, first person of Pacifica heritage yep. to be, but also... And good with numbers. Good with numbers, tax expert, yep. probably one of the few times, one of the few times <laughs> that either the National Labour Party <laughs> have actually had someone doing the job that would appear to have the credentials <laughs> to do the job. <laughs> And that's quite right. But let me ask you this question, though. Then why is she now ranked four, bearing in mind that it normally is leader, deputy leader, finance spokesperson, but Megan Woods is in at three and she's four? Why? Well, I think it'll be an issue of seniority that Megan Woods is a very, very senior Labor member, been a was a very, very competent minister and what have you, and I think they would have thought, no, they've got to keep her at three rather than relegate her. So, you know... um, just ensuring all the egos are properly... I don't think Barbara Edmonds will be too worried about being at number four. Is she a future leader, Barbara Edmonds? Well, she's certainly a future finance minister if they're in a position. Um, you know, well, that's leader, obvious. Possibly, yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, Ginny Anderson. Um, what, just lost it? Well, I just wonder, because they're, they're doing that radio slot, right? They, and um, yeah. Was she just trying to be a bit, you know... Punchy, funny. Well, but, it wasn't funny. Yeah, not funny. But um, but yeah, um, what was interesting though, it took her such a long time. She didn't really, and even when she finally did apologise, which essentially was because Hipkins effectively yes, basically told, said it was a stupid thing to was, say. But it was a pretty half-hearted apology, and I know you know from Mark Mitchell's response, he doesn't he hasn't really accepted it as a fulsome apology. So um, yeah, not not. I mean, it's interesting then on social media, of course, everyone says, oh, well, she's right, she's right. But, I mean, there's a big difference, though. Mark Mitchell, he, he operated as a security contractor in Iraq and other places, but a lot for of the, the work UN. he did, he did for the UN. So, you know, it's, are you saying everyone who's gone over to those places to fulfil those roles are just paid killers? No, they just, and they've oh. got a scorecard of how many people they've knocked off. Um, you're not, not one of the smartest things to say. No, but she, it's not the first time she's opened her mouth like that, is it? Well, up until now, actually, funnily enough, Chris Hipkins um, talked about her as one of their better performers. Only yes. about a day before Well, if she's one she... of the better performers, <laughs> then you've got a problem, haven't you? 
Well, every now and again, people are going to misspeak, I guess. The thing for her will be is, you know, will, will she repeat that or not? Right, to the PM's <laughs> State of the Nation address, which I always thought was supposed to be inspiring. But Luxon saying several times, basically, we're stuffed. Which follows on from what I said last week, that major calls for money where there's no money, for example, the apparent now up to $24 billion shortfall for NZTA projects announced by National. So when are they going to say, uh, sorry, we can't fulfil what we promised you? Yeah, well, I think um, they're laying the groundwork for the coming budget, which was already going to be tight, where I think that they probably won't deliver even on what they were sort of talking about at the end of last year. Um, and they're kind of making out as though they've had all of these terrible s- surprises that they knew nothing about. But if they just read the pre-election you know, fiscal and economic update, they would have been pretty aware of all of the challenges fiscally and also to the economy. And so I think a lot of it is politics. Uh, Maybe it allows them to get the budget through and they don't meet even some of the expectations they raise, but also politics looking ahead three years. Things are terrible now. The economy is fragile. They come to election, you know, in three years' time and say, oh, look what we've done. You know, we picked up a fragile almost dead economy and we've turned it round. So that sounds inspiring. Unlike his speech. Well, you know, that's the politics of it. But I mean, although, to be fair as well, I mean, the country does face serious issues. I mean, we're not living in some sort of nirvana. But Well, we are, because he opened up by saying we're the best country in the whole world to live in. Yeah, well, I think a lot of these political speeches are given, they always (laughs) seem to imply that there was some mythical past where everything was hunky-dory and we were this go-ahead country where, you know, just going out there in the world and making a lot of money, etc. You mean we're not? Well, I can't remember that. but (laughs) Right. So the House back next week, but because of the uh, cancellation this week, there's a lot shorter time frame to get uh, to hit that magic, um, what we did the 100 days mark. Yeah, look, um, the the Leader of the House... um, Chris Bishop's still pretty confident, but what it means is you'll see more urgency next week and yep. possibly the week after to, to fulfil their obligations over legislation and, and, and bits that they've got to get done still. They've got to introduce, for instance, the, the fast-track consenting bill that they're working on at the moment. Yep. That has to be done. So, But, yeah, so there'll be, just, there'll be more urgency than they might have otherwise done over the next couple of weeks to get it done. All right. Well, that is BI Banner for another week. Thanks for watching and stay safe. Commerce and Consumer Affairs Minister Andrew Bailey has announced the government will repeal the Business Payment Practices Act. He joins me now. So why are you getting rid of it? Well, basically it won't work. Australia put in a similar system a few years ago and found that um, when they reviewed it just recently that in some cases businesses were actually paying on a slower basis. So what we're looking at doing is um, moving to a more practical outcome and the view is that why shouldn't government take a lead in terms of making prompt payments to New Zealand manufacturers and suppliers and service providers? So that's the whole thrust of the reform. Well, a government departments and agencies not doing that because, you know, the previous government made that point too. But I mean, I understood it had directed agencies to be prompt in their payments. Yeah, so um, that's right. But uh, actually, we've got a list of what government departments are doing. So we're going to actually 
start to disclose that so we can actually see trans get transparency around uh, payment time for government agencies. But secondly, uh, the big part of it is uh, we want all government departments to move to paying within 10 working days for an ordinary invoice. But where a uh, small supplier, for instance, or whoever, wants to move to e-invoicing, then we're going to incentivise that by requiring payment to be occurred within five working days. Because one of the big things we want to achieve in small business sector particularly is more digitisation and e-commerce is one of those areas. So uh, we're, we're providing a carrot to people who do engage with the government. And remember, the government procures about $51 billion a year that if you use e-commerce, e-invoicing, you're going to be get paid within five working days. And I think you're talking to Business New Zealand about trying to expand this voluntarily, if you like, across the private sector as yes, well? Yes, so, so obviously we want to make sure government is fulfilling its role, but secondly we want to make sure large businesses are alongside us. So Kirk Hope has also announced that um, he's working with the large business group to get a voluntary code to put in place good payment times because, you know, large businesses have the cash, they should be paying their suppliers on a more timely basis. When will the legislation be repealed? Oh, that we're going to hopefully push that through in the next few weeks. We, it is vitally important that we do it quickly, and the reason for that is MBOR is in the cusp of embarking on spending two, three, maybe four million dollars to put in place the IT system for the existing system that doesn't won't work. So we need to stop that, and we need to authorise them to stop work on that. But also, I want to flag to industry in general. Don't do any work more in terms of upgrading your IT platforms to meet this requirement because we're going to move to this other arrangement. But they will, won't they have to upgrade their IT systems, though, to ensure that they're paying promptly? I oh, know. I'm talking about the system, because under the bill practices, they were, have to put in IT changes, which mean that you've got to record actually when it comes okay. into your office, all that type of... So that, that we're saying don't do that. But of course we want to encourage businesses to upgrade and do their um, e-invoicing so they can get advantage of the five-day working day payment. So once you put in place you know, a new sort of, the new proposal, sort of the, the code and what have you, w will you review it at some later date to see if it's proving to be effective? Well, if we can get the gov government spending and paying people much more regularly, when, particularly when they're spending $51 billion a year, that would be a great start. If we can get large businesses doing it, uh, that would be an even greater start. And then, of course, what we want to do is just over time cascade that down through the industry. But, you know, you've got to start with government because we are such a large procurement and we should be showing the leadership around that. Andrew Bailey, thank you for your time. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Reform and Infrastructure Minister Chris Bishop is determined to ensure large projects get built quicker. He joins me now. Well, obviously one of the things you're doing is this fast-track legislation. What impact and how different will it be to the existing fast-track provisions that were put in under COVID? Yeah, so the Coalition Government's got a commitment as part of our 100-day plan to get a fast-track piece of legislation into the House by March 8th, so we're working at pace. Uh, Shane Jones and I are working away on that. Uh, so it, it builds on the existing fast track. So back in the COVID days, Parliament passed a piece of legislation called the COVID Fast Track, 
listed 17 projects that were immediately referred to an expert panel for consent condition application. Uh, and then uh, the David Parker's um, RMA reforms, the National and Built Environment Act that Parliament's now repealed, but that contained a fast track as well. So it builds on that. The basic concept is ministers uh, say um, this project um, should be expedited, essentially, and then the conditions that are you know, get appended to a project um, around how they deal with the environment, deal with any, any of those effects, uh, all of the, you know, sometimes very detailed conditions, they get worked through by an expert panel, senior RMA practitioners, um, the old fast-track panels had an environment court judge as the panel convener, um, and then uh, the projects go, go forward. So it's designed to essentially shortcut through the long, sometimes very long processes that um, things like this can take. Some some critics have raised some concerns on kind of both sides, really. One, that because ministers are doing it, effectively mm. deciding to go ahead with this, whether it politicises the process mm. a bit too much. But actually, on the other hand, others say, well, actually, it's going to require a lot of complicated work and it might be held up by ministers not having the time to properly look at these matters. I mean, yeah, well, I can tell you, certainly from my part, um, and the exact design is just we're just working through a process now uh, you know, what ministers, exactly how the process will work, and, and it's very soon that will become public. We're, we're just literally working that through now. But the high level's been made public. But, I mean, certainly I speak for my part. I mean, um, it's not going to be a hold-up from a workflow at my um, end in terms of delays or anything like that. But, you know, and in terms of politicisation, look, I, I understand that criticism. I think it's, it's valid. But at the end of the day, decisions around what we do and what we build they are political. Politicians are the ones who set the pipelines for transport. Uh, they're the ones who set the investments um, across health infrastructure, education infrastructure. Politicians set the budgets for all of those things. Politicians set the priority list for those things. We published a government policy statement on transport. A national-led um, government policy statement on transport looks very different to a Labour-led, um, Green Party-influenced government policy statement. So these things are political. The, things that's, the thing that's not particularly political is what, is what we're referring to the panels. So uh, the, the things that projects have to do or applicants have to do to take account of their impact on the environment, that stuff is much more sort of scientific, much more data-driven, um, much more apolitical. That stuff should be done by the panels. But, but what projects go ahead or what ones don't, um, you know, I think there is a legitimate role for politicians to play in that. What, what's the possibility, though, getting, if you like, greater political consensus around that infrastructure project? Because hasn't one of the problems been yep. that each time we get a change of government, yes. and, and there will be a change at some point in the future again, a new government yeah. doesn't about face on what the previous government yeah. was trying to do? Well, let, let's hope not, but um, <laughs> but I understand the point, and, and it's something that industry says to me all the time, and I completely understand that. I, I guess I'd say a couple of things. The first is that with the best will in the world, you can't depoliticise everything. So you hear it in education all the time, oh, why can't you all just agree? Well, politicians don't agree. There are different values in education. Um, not everything is just... There is no scientific nirvana that you must reach. There's no perfect policy that if only we just studied it long enough, we could all just agree. That's not the way these things work, and it's the same for uh, infrastructure. Um, so, so we just have to be a bit cautionary about that. You know, the Greens have different ideas about what transport things we should build than we do. Julianne Genta doesn't like roads. She's totally upfront about that. That's cool. I appreciate that. Um, I want to build more four-lane roads in the regions. It's a national party view. We think it makes economic sense. She disagrees with that. No, that's kind of fine. But having said that, um, there is a role, I think, for 
uh, an independent view as to what we need in the future. And that's why we committed as part of our election manifesto to building a 30-year infrastructure plan. Uh, and we, I've started the work on that, and I'll have more to say about it in due course. But the infrastructure, that's why the Infrastructure Commission was set up. So, so Shane Jones, um, in, the, in the first term of the no, last Labour government, set that up. Uh, and National supported it. He engaged with us on that. Um, so the role of the Infrastructure Commission is to take an um, independent, it's an independent Crown entity, so it doesn't, um, I, I can direct it, but it's not you know, like a Crown government department. It's, a, it's an independent agency. Um, Alan Bollard, former um, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, is, the, is the chair. Uh, and so their view, is to, their, their role is to take an independent view and we're going to ask them to do a 30-year um, plan essentially for what New Zealand needs into the future, both in terms of um, maintenance, because that's very important, uh, and projects that you can invest in that defer the need for major projects, and that's very important, but also what we need in the future. And one of the things they do in other countries, uh, say Australia for example, which has a variety of infrastructure bodies, is they have a priority project list, which are things that independent experts have said we will need in the future and what I've been told anyway is that depending on how the governments change, the, the sort of particular political colour flavour uh, sometimes the list tends towards some projects on the list and other times it tends towards other types of projects and I'm sure you can think about exactly how that works uh, and, but the point is the projects have kind of been independently assessed as useful and important uh, and so you do get that kind of more apolitical, independent view about what's important, but still recognising that there's a role for the political overlay through it. So it's just that finding that sweet spot. I'm really keen to try and find that, and I know the industry's keen on it too. I mean, obviously, too, I mean, massive cost involved, and I think talking about the Commission, it's just put out a report saying that basically 60% of your infrastructure investment needs mm. to be on just maintaining, renewing yes. existing infrastructure. I mean, as you look at the numbers... How do you how do you can you know think about how a government can afford to do what it needs to do? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's an eye watering amount of money, and and the maintenance is really important. It's something we've done quite a bad job of as a country, both at a local government level and a national government level. So, uh, again, we're, we're leading a piece of work on this, and um, we need to be do much better at asset management plans. For example, that the crown, the central government, doesn't do a particularly good job of looking after its own assets. That's true across school property, across health infrastructure, across state highway network, although um, that's in better shape than other parts. Uh, and so looking at mandatory asset management plans, there's a whole suite of things we're looking at, really technical, but just the way in which the Treasury system um, interacts with monitoring major projects and things like that, and again, you know, may, may have more to say about that um, soon, but we're taking a whole big deep look at that at the moment, um, myself as Infrastructure Minister, um, alongside other relevant ministers. So. Maintenance is very important, um, but so is investments that you can make that defer the need for major investments. The classic is water metres. Uh, you know, here in Wellington, for example, uh, there's now essentially political consensus that we need water metres, which is fantastic to see because what they do is they find where the leaks are, uh, so you can fix the leaks. And so it, 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 essentially the combination of demand management, finding out where the leaks actually are, encouraging water conservation, getting more out of the existing network that we already have, means we don't have to build new, uh, massively new uh, water infrastructure to, to cope with uh, rising population. And, and they're basically, it's quite interesting, in the last 100 days we now seem to have kind of reached a consensus in Wellington that water metres are the way forward, um, whereas we argued about it for 20 years. I see that as, <laughs> hasn't had a lot of publicity, but I see that as a real, real step forward. I mean, we're talking about new infrastructure, roads and like, the like. I mean, you're looking 
other funding models rather than simply government borrowing and putting the money in, you know, PPPs. Yep. Yep. Um, Again, we campaigned, absolutely, we, we campaigned on that. It's part of the various coalition agreements. So, uh, you know, sometimes called sort of innovative funding and financing, PPPs, uh, toll, toll roads as well. Um, what they call uh, build and lease back arrangements. We've committed to looking at that as part of uh, building new hospitals, for example. And, um, you know, again, widely used overseas, not really used um, in New Zealand. And um, so you, you just have to look at those things as part of the suite of, uh, of tools available so you get more out of Crown Capital. Um, so very open to that. It's not going to work for everything. I mean, you know, at the end of the day... Um, Sometimes you just do the old, you know, the Crown just invests, you monitor the project properly, you know, you, you um, let the experts do the contracting and you get a good project out of the end of the day. Often for many projects that'll be the best way. But, you know, there'll be a variety of projects out there where we will definitely look to use some of those new tools. I mean, obviously a lot of this large infrastructure, it's, it's long-run stuff. It runs over many years, often across multiple governments. So, I mean, like three years from now, if you look at it in the electoral cycle, what for you will look like success? So, good question. Um... I've got a, a range of things that we campaigned on that we want to do. So we're going to set up a new agency called the National Infrastructure Agency. Well, then we haven't sorted the name out, but it will be our National Infrastructure Agency. And that is going to be a shop front for uh, domestic and offshore investors that want to turn up in New Zealand and invest. If you think about that, um, the Superfund deal that they did with CDPQ, the Canadian Pension Plan, you know, back uh, three or four years ago now that wanted to build light rail in Auckland, they turned up with an unsolicited bid uh, the Crown didn't know what to do. MB said talk to NZTA, NZTA said talk to the Treasury, Treasury said talk to somebody else. They went round in circles, took forever, and in the end it never ended up happening. There's other reasons for that, but the initial stuff was pretty bad. So there needs to be a repository where, or a place where if people want to turn up and invest, and I'm thinking about domestically, including Iwi, by the way, who are very interested in investing in long-lived infrastructure with a you know rate of return, uh, there needs to be a place where they can go. We need a centre of expertise around procurement, um, the, the Crown is a bad procurer, they're a bad client, uh, so I think there's lots of improvements there. So we have a new agency, uh, we are going to start to use some of these new tools, PPPs, toll roads, value capture, things like that. Uh, we've got that 30-year plan published with a strategy to go alongside it, so everyone kind of knows the direction that we're going. Uh, and we've also started to uh, build the kind of regional and city deals that we've talked about as well. So um, work has started on those as well. Uh, Simeon Brown and I are leading work on that, Minister of Transport and Local Government. Th those are uh, long-lived partnerships between central government and local government, setting out a plan for a region over 10, 20, 30 years, saying, rightio, as a region you've got these priorities, as a central government we've got these priorities, let's um, get some agreement on what those are, let's get some funding structures in place, let's map out the region, um, spatially plan the region, particularly around housing and major transport, major industry and things like that. Uh, and let's get the funding structures in place to make sure we can go ahead with that. And that is extremely popular with local government. You know, there's, there, we've been inundated with um, requests and proposals and plans, and, you know, we're just going to work our way through that. Chris Bishop, thank you for your time. Thank you. Prime Minister Christopher Luxon has promised his government will be out hustling in the world. To talk about that, I'm joined by Trade Minister Todd McClay. 
So kind of hustling around, hustling, and what, what, what will that mean? Well, it's, it's very much what New Zealand businesses do uh, on the world stage. You take a business who, you know, wants to establish itself in a market, they'll go out, they'll be active, they'll visit, they'll create relationships, they'll invest time and effort in that, and that's what the New Zealand government will do. You know, if you think about the last six years, and COVID would be part of it, uh, we probably ended up being far too inward-looking, the government certainly, uh, and we weren't out there uh, servicing important relationships anywhere near as much as we should or putting the investment into those relationships that we want to grow. So it's a very clear signal from Christopher Luxon as Prime Minister is the government's not going to sit at home waiting for people to come and buy things from us. We're going to be out there with businesses on the world stage, finding opportunities and um, helping grow the New Zealand economy. I mean, but to be fair, though, that, that that government still actually managed to negotiate and conclude a number of free trade agreements, one of which now is just going through Parliament, the, the one with the European Union. So would yeah. you, what... Well, well, yes, but um, we shouldn't measure the success of the trade policy based on just that which we uh, we negotiate. You know, there's more to it than that. So one of the other metrics we've said is we want to double our exports by value over 10 years. We should, you know, we, sh- we should measure our success by how much we sell as well as the things that we negotiate. But if you take India as an example, so you're right, uh, there were a couple of trade deals that were done Uh, under the last government. They were established and set up and and even launched previously before they came there. But, uh, you know, during the course of that six years, their engagement with India became almost, uh, you know, non-existent, except towards the end of the six years. They said it wasn't a priority, that there wasn't a deal there, that it was too hard. You know, the foreign minister at the time said a, a trade agreement with India is not a priority for the New Zealand government. Yet Australia negotiated a deal during that period of time, actually during COVID, during when they were locked down. The UK has started and close to concluding. Canada was very close. India was doing deals with other countries and negotiating with the European Union. Uh, and, you know, we, we're being left behind. So what does that mean in real terms? Well, it means for the New Zealand sheep farmer, um, they face a 30% tariff when they send lamb to India. About half the Indian population eat meat. Uh, the other half don't. You know, there's 700 million people, therefore, that could eat it. And the Australian sheep farmer has a zero tariff, so uh, they get to sell as much meat as they want, 30% lower price than the New Zealand farmer, and we're missing out. And so what we're saying is actually we're going to be out on the world stage. You know, the government should be there, ministers should be visiting, we should be looking for opportunities, we should be opening the door and helping businesses do more trade, not just negotiating deals for them. Well, you were there late last year. Yeah. When when you when will you be leading a trade delegation, a business delegation to India this year? When, yeah. How soon will that be? Well, the Prime Minister has uh, committed to going to India within his first year in office, and so we're working on that now. Uh, there will be other visits in the very near future. I'm meeting just in a week from now with the Indian Trade Minister again, and we'll have conversations. What, and so in, it's in not, India? Yeah, in, uh, in the WTO uh, Ministerial w- Conference in, uh, in Dubai and in the UAE. Uh, we've agreed to meet there rather than... Uh, me travelling to India, you'll see a lot of travel from me and other ministers there. So we're putting in place now exactly what our strategy should be to invest in the relationship with India. And all I can tell you is there will be a number of trade missions. And what we're doing is talking to India and the business community about what that should look like. So as an example, it's a very big place. Should it be state by state in India as opposed to everywhere? Should we, uh, you know, uh, get 30 business people from important companies together and go out there and have 
lots of meetings, which is important. Or should actually what we do is also have a sectorial approach and say, well, here's a sector that actually has particular interest in India, uh, the, the wood and log trade as an example. You know, we've been able to get barriers out of the way so New Zealand wood exports can go back into India again. They weren't able to for for two years. In fact, that was announced when I was there that they had changed the rule to allow it to come back in. Should we take the New Zealand wood sector over there to create partnerships? and measure the success on those trade missions, not by the number of meetings or lunches or leads that are generated, but by actually the deals that are done and the extra trade uh, that is created. So even without a free trade deal, do you believe there's still plenty of scope to expand trade even before you get a free trade deal? And the answer is yes to that. And when I met with my counterpart, Minister Goyal, at the end of last year, we agreed to look for ways uh, for their more trade to take place. So one of those actually is around these non-tariff barriers, you know, and, and the wood products going into India is an example of that. We changed some rules here about how they are treated and fumigated, didn't meet the requirements of India, and so for two years there were no logs sent to India. We've worked through that. So one of the things we've agreed is our officials are going to meet quite soon, I think it's in New Zealand, and they're going to look at these non-tariff barriers and how we can fix some of them more quickly uh, and also how we can identify them before they come up so we can fix them before they're a problem for the business communities, number one. Number two, if I, I've invited him to come to New Zealand and to bring a trade mission down and he's indicated he would like to do that. Uh, they've got their election to get out of the way so you know, it might be the latter, later part of the year and that once their election is done we will be heading in that direction. And So the answer is yet there's trade that is existing at the moment outside of a formal agreement. There's much more that can be done but ultimately for New Zealand you know, we're of the belief that where you have a, a framework, a set of rules that gives certainty to businesses and industry on both sides and it's balanced so it's mutually beneficial, then trade will grow exponentially more quickly because of that certainty. And um, you know, I've indicated to him that's like what we would like to do, but the number one priority for the new government at the moment is investing in that relationship because we think it was underdone over the last five or six years. It's not about blame, you know, that's the past. I'm not looking backwards. I'm just saying we're going to invest a lot in it uh, in a number of fronts, uh, not just around business and trade, uh, and ultimately Ultimately, when countries do that and they get on well, as we've seen with China, you know, a trade deal is in the offing because it, the, it will be the business community on both sides that will start asking their government for it. Has India indicated that you know, they'd be prepared to look at that again? negotiations? Well, um, so we haven't sat down and said in my very first meeting with them, we have to negotiate. Uh, you know, I've been very clear that we want to invest in the relationship. There'll be areas that we could cooperate in defence, as an example, as happened before. You know, I think India, there's a role that they can play in the Pacific with the Pacific Island nations, certainly with Fiji. We'll probably be able to cooperate in those sorts of things. Already on the world stage in a number of meetings I'm involved in, uh, you know, I meet with my Indian counterpart or their ambassadors or high commissioners and we talk about areas we have in common and how we might go forward with that in those meetings. So you'll see a lot of this building across the government over a period of time but ultimately uh, as we've seen that they've started to do trade deals with the world we'll get to a point where also they should do one with New Zealand and we're going to put every effort in to make sure that happens as quickly when, as possible. When, when do you think that could be? Well nothing happens, nothing good happens quickly in trade so I'm not going to put a timeline on it but the Prime Minister was very clear uh, before the election of expectations about us making significant progress during this term of Parliament. It's why uh, the very first speech that I made as Trade Minister was to end a New Zealand business uh, function in Auckland 
on uh, our relationship with India. In fact, that was the first formal speech that the new government made, and the very, very first first visit I did as trade minister was to India. I flew up there for a day. You know, we flew up there, worked all day, got on a plane, came back again. We didn't spend a night in any hotels. We slept on the airplane because it's an important relationship we've been to do, demonstrate to them just how important that was. So close to Christmas when Parliament was an urgency and we've agreed to meet a number of times and uh, have been talking uh, uh, fairly frequently as we find ways to build that relationship. Todd McLean, thank you for your time. Pleasure. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.